0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers. Learn more at square.com go slash in the sauce. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business
2: membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening
1: community and promote their work to apply and review the terms and conditions go to heritageradionetwork.org/biz I'm Allison Kane and welcome to In the Sauce a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ibrahim Basir, founder and CEO of A Dozen Cousins, a natural food brand that makes convenient products inspired by traditional Creole, Caribbean, and Latin American recipes. Their first offering is a line of seasoned, ready-to-eat beans that are bringing much-needed innovation to the sleepy $3 billion bean category. A Dozen Cousins launched last year in 2019 and is now available at all Whole Foods nationwide, as well as over a thousand other stores across the US. Welcome, Ibrahim.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you.
1: Yes, I've been trying to talk to you for a while. Um, I think I'm just, I think I'm a bean lover, first of all. And I feel like, You are doing something really cool that um, I'm just kind of excited to learn more about. And so I feel like I've been kind of hunting you down for like six months.
3: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm sorry that it's felt that way, but I appreciate the kind words and uh, I'm happy (laughs) I finally get the chance to
1: call No, it's good. It's good. When Matt was like, can you reschedule? I'm like, no, no, no. Um, So let's get a little bit into uh, you. And you have a really interesting background, um, which I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast will learn a lot from. But going back even kind of further, um, you grew up in Brooklyn. Yep. And you had a very big family, from what I understand.
3: I do. So I have nine siblings. I am the the seventh out of ten children. So I have six sisters and three brothers. So we had um, we had I had a crowded house. Since, since
1: that is that is a lot of kids. Um, and do you feel like because I have five and I talk about just sort of do you feel like birth order has an effect when you're seven out of ten or at that point everyone's kind of a middle child except for the oldest and the youngest.
3: Um, no, there's, there's still there's still some of that. So like I, we I joke around a lot. Like there's the oldest girl and the oldest boy. They kind of have their own special place. Then the yeah. youngest girl and the youngest boy. They have their own special place. And so it's really the other six of us who are just in the middle.
1: Right. Um, so you yeah, are.
3: Yeah.
1: You're a middle child. It just, I'm a middle
3: child. Right. <laughs> I'm just oh I'm God. in the mix.
1: Right. I mean, middle children like to distinguish themselves and set themselves apart. And they tend to be um, they tend to be kind of like not as um, rule following as the oldest and not as like kind of naughty as the youngest. Are you are you somewhere in there?
3: I don't know, honestly. The thing that resonates with me the most about being a middle child, honestly, is that it's, it made me very competitive. You know, I feel yeah. like I always was trying to keep up with my older siblings and keep ahead of my younger siblings, and so somehow I, I just I had this like competition gene that has stuck with me. That to me feels like the most resonating trait from my my middle child though.
1: That's so funny. That actually really works for my family too. It's, I never really thought of the comp- you know, like the competitive piece. And you, like, what about food? What about food in your house? And, I mean, what were you eating for dinner with 10 kids every night? And how important was food and culturally and all of that?
3: Yeah, man, food was a really big deal for us. So, I mean, first of all, there's just a the really practical, like, just role that dinner played in our family, which was this moment for everyone to come together at the end of the day right? And particularly mm-hmm. when we were younger, when everyone was still kind of, you know, school aged, if you will, that was the moment everyone was in the living room, everyone was in the dining room. And it just kind of gives you that touch point, right? For your parents yep. to kind of check, check in on the different kids, for us to check in on each other. If maybe I didn't see my sister all day, like I saw her then, you know what I mean? So yeah, definitely food was very tied to that experience. That's the first thing. The second thing I'll say is that you know, when you have a family that big, it's not like, you know, we, we came from pretty modest means, probably like just a working class family. And so you can't really eat out at restaurants a ton with 10 children, right? theres just right. comes cross cost prohibitive. And oh so God. we cooked almost, my mother cooked basically every day from probably the first like 15 years of my life, and right. maybe even longer for some of my older siblings. But um, so there was that element of just like the love and the care that goes into home cooked food, right? Um, yep. which, was, which was very special to me. Um, And then, you know, the last thing I'll say is, like, it was a very easy way to celebrate, you know. So when Mm -hmm. I think about holidays or graduations or birthdays or the birth of a new child, right, like it's always tied to these big feasts that we would have, right, whether it was like a potluck style or what have you. Um, I I just grew up really associating food with joy and connection and family, and and that, that has stuck with me.
1: Yeah. I mean, everything you're saying makes so much sense to me. And I mean, people who listen to this probably know, like I was an only child and everything that you're saying is exactly why I had five kids. Like yeah. I craved that so much, you know, we dinner is like a non-negotiable and has been forever, um, with my kids. It's just, they can bring friends, they can do whatever, but everyone has to be at that table at the end of the day. Cause it is sometimes the only chance you get to really like tune in. Um, and I, you know, the joy that kind of was around the table, even, you know, the arguing and the, you know, all of it, like it wasn't always, you know, perfectly perfect, but that really, that makes a lot of sense. Did you, how many of you learned how to cook?
3: I mean, all of us know how to cook in the just the general sense. Like I don't, I'm trying to just go through my mental rolodex, man. I don't have one sibling that couldn't put together a solid meal for multiple people. You know, wow. Uh, there's a there's a hierarchy, of course, right? There's so, there's some of us who I like, <laughs> think cook better than others. That's right. That's to be expected. But everyone is comfortable in the kitchen. Everyone prepares their own food. I remember even myself, like. My mother would get mad at me because she would wake up on Saturday morning and I had made like French toast and eggs, right. and she's like, "Look, I don't, I don't want you in the kitchen. Please don't, don't cook right. before anyone wakes up." You know, yep. so like, I think all of us have a have a certain love for cooking.
1: Yeah, that's kind of cool. I I can't necessarily say the same for everyone. I think sometimes when you have a mom or like a parent that's like super comfortable in the kitchen, the kids don't always. Develop their own skills in there because we kind of, that is our domain. Like, I'm kind of lucky my parents didn't really cook because it just became my place very, very early. Um, so it's pretty cool that all 10 of you can like cook meals for multiple people. And when you were, well, my young-
3: parents were very big in general on just passing out housework, you know what I right. mean? So across the board, I mean, first of all, if you have 10 kids, you have to, right? Like you'll go crazy yeah. if you don't start, start training up these kids to do some work. So, we, you know, whether it was cooking or cleaning or shopping, like, I, you know, I've, I've been doing a grocery shopping in my house since I was like 13. Probably. Which so, is a very know, good it,
1: experience for the. It world. is.
3: It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I will cut you off. You're about to ask me something else.
1: No, no. I mean, that's actually a really good segue because were you, like, were you a grocery store? Were you one of those kids who, like, was always interested in the brands and how the grocery store worked? Was it just sort of a means to an end? Like, were the plant like the seeds of working in the food industry planted early, or was it something you came to later, like in school?
3: Um, in, in retrospect, they were planted really early. You know, I don't know that I realized it during that time. Like, I certainly wasn't 13 or 14 thinking, like, "Oh, I want to launch a packaged food company." Right. But what I what I was was definitely the kid who will go through the store and be like, "Oh, wait, this flavor is new. I've never seen yep. this before." Or yeah. Oh, like I remember when Snapple was really big in New York and they started putting, you know, jokes and trivia under the cap or when, you know, brands would have runs like summertime promotions were a really big deal when I was younger, where, you know, there'd be certain contests that you could win or new flavors or just I was really intrigued by all that stuff. I loved it. Um, And that stayed with me. Even as I got a little older, I would go on vacation and like we buy like snacks for each other. Right. So let's say you were in, you know, someone went on a trip to Florida. They go to the local store and see what brands were there or what regional snacks were there that you couldn't yep. find in New York, and they bring them oh, home. Sure
1: I remember, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, and and then you know taking a step further when I you know was old enough to start traveling abroad, I remember like people, everyone who I was traveling with would be frustrated, like why are you just going to supermarkets? Like yeah. why is this interesting to you? And I would want to go and you know, see the packaging and the flavors and the formats yeah. and so on. So it certainly was a, it's, it's always been an interest of mine. Uh, my very first job was in a supermarket as well. I, I used to pack the groceries right. um, and like d- deliver them to people's houses. So I've always had this connection and this closeness and proximity to packaged food. Uh, it didn't really click into place for me as a career or a potential career until, you know, much later though.
1: So why, I mean, you went to business school. Did you go to Wharton undergrad or did you go to business school?
3: I went to Wharton for business school. As an undergrad, I studied history, right. and um, history was my first love, and it still is a love of mine. And, and even in the brand that we're building now, history plays a big part in it, in terms of like the storytelling that we try to do, and yep. the flavors that we select, and just the kind of the culture and the history that goes into branding. That you know that comes a lot from my own just academic background. I studied American history yep. um, as an undergrad, and then came back and, and got my MBA.
1: You know, we have actually a lot in common considering that we're very different. Like, it's kind of funny. That was my major too. And um, it was my first love for sure. And it's actually why I ended up going back to food studies as like for my master's. Just because you could look at history through so many different lenses. But one of the really cool ways to look at it is like who eats what, who they eat with, Who don't they eat with? Where were the trade routes? You know, who had access to land? Like there's so many, there's so many ties between like food and and agriculture and history and just the way that people...
3: One hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And 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 I've always just, to, for me, the thing that always drew me into peop, to history was the people. You know, yeah. um, like I remember in high school reading the People's History of the U.S. Right, which is a very classic book for young, yeah. you know, young young budding historians. But you know, a lot of history is taught from the perspective of who's in charge and yeah. uh, what wars were fought. Right. So very much a, like a you know a, this kind of history of conflict or of, of, of government. And I've always been intrigued more by like you know, letters and primary documents, lo- you know, yep. newspapers from the time and autobiographies and memoirs and just how were people living were in different eras, and what was shaping the way that they lived and, and things like that. And, and now that also impacts the way that I think as a marketer, right, which is like trying to just be very connected to, you know, what's going on in culture and what's going on in people's lives and how does that impact the way that our brands and our products can kind of fit in.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry about the dog barking. Um, and so th- and so then why did you end up going back to business school? Like obviously you didn't become a history professor.
3: Correct. So I um I studied history, went through what I'm sure all undergrads go through, which is some multi-year period of like trying to figure out what they want to be in the world, right? And so history professor was one of the things I considered, and lawyer was one of the things I considered, but um, towards the end of my time at undergrad, I actually took a, like an intro to marketing class mm-hmm. and it just, it just clicked in place for me in a, in a, really interesting way of like all the things that we've been talking about, right? So this kind of nascent passion for brand building and products, the marketing class pulled it to the forefront of like, okay, here's why you love looking at packaging. Here's why you're super interested in limited editions and promotions and what that means. Right. Right. Um, It also pulled in this element of almost like anthropology or sociology, right? There's a lot of that in marketing. Um, So that was super interesting to me. And then my father was an entrepreneur. And so I've always had in the back of my mind just this kind of, you know, a little bit of an independent streak of feeling like, man, I can't wait to get to a point where I can do my own thing and, and kind of shape how I spend my time and what I'm working on. And so all those factors kind of combined right at the end of my undergrad time period where I was like oh this marketing thing is interesting and so that planted right. a seed that you know then then germinated a couple of years later when me returned to business
1: I mean it's it's very and so did you cuz we've had a bunch of people on here who who did kind of go the business school road um, and obviously a lot who haven't do you feel like it was do you feel like it was important I mean, looking back on your career, like, do you feel like what you learned in school about marketing and I'm assuming other things since, you know, there's finance and stuff like that, like how, A, did it kind of like help project you into, you know, the job that you ended up getting or do you think it, how much of an influence do you think it had on you and what do you think it was like the biggest takeaway from, from the
3: experience? Yeah. So for me, business school was super important for me. And and candidly, I don't know that it was the academic stuff as much because I feel like I got a lot of on-job experience once I left business school that was probably just as valuable as the stuff that I learned in the classroom. But there were a lot of just like soft skills and leadership development stuff that I don't, I don't know that I would have developed as quickly if it wasn't for being in that environment. So like, for example, I'm a natural introvert. I've always performed candidly, pretty poorly in like group team setting type of things, right? Where it's like, I just like to do my own thing. I'm a little stubborn, I'm a little shy. And that, that has always been the case for me throughout my kind of, you know, undergrad and, and school and things of that nature. And so going through business school, where we were in these learning teams, and it was like, look, you got four or five people, you got to help kind of guide the group, you have to remain engaged, you have to um, you know it just forced me to get rid of some bad habits that I had of like checking out of, of teamwork or you know stuff like that. yeah um, so that was that was, that was super important for me. and then the other thing I would just say is just like networking and like yeah. relationship like that for me was also something that I, I, I wasn't great at it in business school but I, I left business school way better at it than I had entered and I developed a, what I' now call kind of like my my introvert uh, networking toolkit right which is like how do you really like I hate mingling events. I really don't go to a lot of stuff like that. Um, yeah. You know, happy hour type things. They just they stress me out. I don't find them that useful. But like, I got really good at connecting with people one on one, or um, sharing common interests, or you know, connecting via email. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just a lot of just I was able to build out a toolkit that worked for me, to where now I feel like I'm really good at building relationships and, and networking with people, but I can do so in a way that feels comfortable and it doesn't feel like
1: for you know I mean? stressing
3: myself. Yeah, just stressing myself yeah. out of being inauthentic. And so I I yeah. appreciate
1: that. No, I, I feel the same way. And I go back and forth a little bit. I think especially as like a CPG founder, I definitely have felt sort of times where I've been I need to be on those panels that people want to do and I, I need to be out there more, in quotes. And my I'm actually not I I'm sort of like an ambivert, like I'm a little half and half, but those events and that mingling and going to happy hours and going to expo West parties and things like that, give me anxiety like two weeks before. Um, And I go back and forth kind of between, you know, I should just put my head down and build a really good company and, and, and do everything I can to get us to a like, I don't need to be out there. Um, And then sometimes I feel like, it's sort of what's expected these days, a little bit. Um,
3: so I mean, I go a I, step further though. And just, oh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, sorry.
1: No, but I think you're right that there's like I like the introverts' sort of toolkit to doing it. So maybe it's not panels and cocktail hours, but maybe it's getting better at LinkedIn or getting better at one-on-one conversations or emailing people directly. And you know, maybe there's like something in between um, that sort of founder who's on the circuit which kind of sounds like it makes both of us uncomfortable with you know founder who's completely under a rock you know maybe there's something in between
3: Oh yeah that's what I was going to say I'll just to you know wrap that very quickly it's like to me there's no doubt that you can do more and get further faster with the help of of other people right so it's not really to me a debate of like hey could I do this all by myself I know I couldn't right and I mm-hmm. wouldn't be where our company wouldn't be where it is if it wasn't for a lot of great peers and mentors and, you know, just even some random bits of serendipity, right? And so um, I don't doubt any of that. It's just doing it in a way that feels comfortable and authentic to to who I am, right? And and like you said, doesn't cause me a lot of stress.
1: So we're going to blow through really quickly the next little section so then we can get to all of your other actual advice. But um, you ended up at – where? so I know you ended up at Annie's, but were you – where were you right out of school?
3: So after business school, I started my career at General Mills and was initially working the way that a company like General Mills works, which is, of course, a big food company. You kind of rotate through different brands kind of every mm-hmm. 12 to 18 months. And at least that's how it was when I was there. Right. So I started off on fruit snacks, <laughs> Gushers, Fruit Roll-Up, Fruit by the Foot, um, rotated through the Progresso Soup. Um, then my third role, I landed in um, Small Planet Foods, which was basically General Mills' old natural and organic division. Right. And it ended up being kind of like a career-altering and life-altering role, right, where I got a chance to work on all these really great natural and organic brands like Lara Bar and Cascadian Farm. Yeah. good. Um, and for me, like, I always joke, before I got into that role, I didn't know what a GMO was, I didn't care what a GMO was, right? I just like, the food tastes good, I'm down for it, right? And so Mm -hmm. that role was really educational for me in that I got to learn a bit more about ingredients and sourcing and health and wellness. And then on the brand building side, I got a chance to see, okay, how are really small and emerging brands being built today, right? It was very different than my experience working on like Gushers or Fruit Roll-Up, which has you know, super high awareness, super high penetration, so. Yeah. so coming out of that role, I basically just started trying to keep myself on this like emerging brand track. It fit my personality. I'm like, I like moving fast. I like kind of the, a little bit more of the, you know, iterative, you know, experimental approach to, to business building, okay. if you will. Yeah. And so stay, stayed on that path. And when General Mills acquired Annie's, like literally the day after the deal went through, you know, I went to my manager. I'm like, look, I got to get out to California. Tell me what I need to do. Who do I need to talk to? Right. And so I right. um, spent probably I think it probably took me about a year from the time that the deal closed to when I actually was able to make my way out to um, to Berkeley, which was another great, great experience. Um, and I spent about two years on Annie's, maybe between a year and a half and two years on Annie's working on new product development, um, had a chance to work under um, the longtime CEO of Annie's, John Foraker, who eventually yeah. became a mentor and investor of mine but yeah. I got a chance to really just learn about being a CEO through like some osmosis, you know what I mean? Yeah. Of like being in meetings with him and observing how he handles certain things and, you know, trying to apply my own, you know, my own lens and my own filter to that in some ways. And so um, it was a great, great experience. And then Annie's was kind of the last formal job that I held before I, I started with the dozen cousins.
1: Annie's is like the, you know, it's on every deck, it's like the story of you know, it, there's like Kraft and Annie's and you know Heinz and Sir Kensington's and you know Yoplait and Chobani. It's like the classic sort of making a better for you product that's a little premium that the consumer's willing to pay more for because it is actually better. Um, it's, it's sort of this classic. I feel like it's the classic story, you know. Um,
3: it is, man. And, you know, having got a chance to be in that building and, and to, you know, work alongside a lot of the people who were on that that, you know, case study journey, if you will. It's like yep. the thing that resonates with me the most, honestly, was the mission that the brand was on around organic agriculture and sustainability and the way that they pushed that into every decision that the brand made. Like, I, I'm not even kidding you. I was blown away. Like the very first meeting. That I was in at Annie's, they basically canceled a twelve SKU launch because they weren't happy with a particular like ingredient sourcing. And wow. I was just sitting there looking around the room like, "What the hell is going on? Yeah, are you guys said, serious? What are we? Yeah, like, right. what are we doing here? Like, you know what I mean?" And everyone was like, "No, dear, this is it. This is the call. This is the right way to go." And it was like, it was very, um, it was impactful, man. You know, every brand has to, of course, choose what what that is for them, right? Not every brand is going to be tied into sustainability or agriculture in that way but every brand should have those things that they care about and that north star that then can help dictate all the other decisions that they make as a as a business and you know like for with a dozen cousins for example we really yeah. put we put culture on a pedestal in that same way right where it's like we're not going to launch a product that isn't authentic or that does that the people who come from that country or who come from that region wouldn't be proud to eat and share and, and champion yeah. right our marketing is not going to be corny or inauthentic, you know, like things like that, right? And so that would be one of the big takeaways I have from that time period. It's just like, what is, what does your brand really stand for? Because it's going to inevitably lead to some tough choices, and you have to just be ready to make those.
1: Yeah, I mean, I keep going back to that, you know, to the Simon Sinek, you know, start with why, like why this product, why you, you know, if if everyone isn't kind of if there isn't something kind of that everyone's laddering up to, that every decision is laddering up to. Um, it gets very hard to make decisions. And all of a sudden, you know, I think as a as an emerging business, you know, you get a lot of weird things thrown at you from stores that want you to investors that want to invest to, you know, things that are quote unquote opportunities, you know. And if you don't have sort of your own sort of internal system to measure those things against, you can get blown around pretty quickly. Um, so I think it's cool that, that, you know, I was reading and it's something that really resonated with me that I read that you said, and it was like, on one hand, you were working in this natural foods, you know, sector in Berkeley for sort of, you know, the, the like the ultimate natural food brand. And on the other hand, your connection to food goes back to that table of 10 kids, everyone cooking and everyone eating and sort of this like deep connection. And I feel like over the past several years, the, you know, like just look at Expo West, right? It used to be some hippie brands and some health food stores. And now it's, you know, when it comes back, hopefully it's kind of insane. And there's like, you know air infused with collagen and that's a natural brand you know they're all there's like there's been sort of like a shift away from food and and like as you say sort of the culture and emotion of food um and it seems like what you're trying to build is this bridge where you can have the culture and emotion and you can also have those things that are important that you learned
3: at an Annie's. Yeah, 100%. And I, yeah, that's 100% right. And I have a lot of love, of course, for a, a many natural food brands that are in the space. You know, the thing that would, that kind of hit me after a few years of really being steeped in the world was just, it didn't, um, it didn't feel like home. It didn't connect with my relationship with food. You know, right. like, I, I was like a little bit of like an emperor's new clothes situation where I found myself in conversations or, supporting things that didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't actually eat them when I went home. You know what I mean? Yep. Where it was like, um, food started to feel like a bit of a, um, I don't know, like a, like a, just a tool, like, okay, we're gonna function get stronger. Yeah. It was very functional. We're going to get stronger and faster and, uh, return, you know, take carbon out the atmosphere. And like all that stuff is great. And obviously a very honorable pursuit, right. To be physically healthy and to keep the environment healthy. But like, when I went home, the conversation we were having about food was more around like, yo, this tastes great. Right. Uh, is there more? This, you know, man, this thing really filled me up. Or, right. yo, I can't believe you baked this for me. You, you even got the, you made the frosting just the way I like it. Right. Like mm-hmm. it was the conversation was just different. It was about love and culture yeah. and connection. And so, um, not to mention, just the actual foods themselves were, were very different. Right. Like, you know, um, I don't necessarily love kale. You know what I mean? Like I like broccoli or, you know what I mean? Like, so there was just, there's just things like that. So when I first started Dozen Cousins, the idea very simply that I just had on the page was like, what would a brand, what would a natural food brand need to look like for it to resonate with my family, my community, the people I grew up with, right? Like, how can we make the space? There's also just like a, a racial and an ethnic component to that as well. A socioeconomic component maybe is even a better way to put it where, you know, lower income or working class people have a different relationship with food than high income, very, very, you know, a lot of people with a lot of like disposable wealth, right? There's just a different relationship. And so I wanted to build a brand that I felt like could resonate with that that second group, which maybe is a bit more where I came from, right? And so mm-hmm. um, over time, then the I, obviously the idea of the brand started to really click into place, where I kind of identified um, black and Latino consumers specifically as this kind of tribe that I had grown up around. New York, in particular, is interesting because you have people that are that run the full spectrum, right? From kind of people from the southern U.S., people from uh, you know black people who are from the Caribbean. Um, Latino people who are from the Caribbean, people who are from Mexico, from Central America, from South America, right? It's like this. Yeah. There's a lot of subcultures and blending, but there's also a little bit of this kind of connectivity at a broader level in terms of the food that we eat. So yeah. that kind of just became the, you know, the motif for the brand. And um, you know, beans was a very natural first choice, of course, just because you know beans are they're healthy, they taste good, and there's also this like emotional and cultural connection between. Uh, Black and Latino cuisine and, and beans. So sorry if I jumped ahead for a little bit there. But.
1: No, 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 you didn't jump ahead at all. It's it's amazing, and I, you know, I, I mean, one of the things that just sort of also stuck out is like there hasn't been that much food um, at these shows. I mean, if you think about it, there's a lot of bars and a lot of drinks and a lot of um, chips, and you know, but. But what you're making is, is a meal, you know, you're making something that isn't just like, and I think part of that, you know, maybe this is just my opinion, but I think part of that is when you had a lot of tech money kind of pouring into the food industry, it wasn't about culture or emotion or depth. It was about I'm how, how many calories am I getting? How much fat am I getting? you know, how quickly will I be able to burn this if I'm working or if I'm riding my bike? You know, it did become very much about sort of that function piece. And I like your point that a lot of that is important and good and it's not to diminish it, but when you can bring back in the part of food that makes everyone love food, you know, (laughs) like it's kind of, it's a great why, you know, it's a great reason to exist. Um, I think we should take a little break and then um, and then we'll come back and, and we'll like get into the nitty gritty because I'm sure you have a lot of good advice. So we'll be right back. This
2: episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner Mary Izette created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the tap room. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving
1: to a to-go model.
2: The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers
1: with a contactless pickup in no time.
2: If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together, and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com go in the sauce.
1: I'm back with Ibrahim Basir from A Dozen Cousins. Um, okay, so you had the idea. You wanted to start with beans. I'm assuming you kind of reverse engineered based on what you had learned at General Mills and especially from Annie's, but what were your first couple of steps starting it and when did you know that you were onto something?
3: Um, the first steps are a lot of what we talked about, which was, you know, a step one with any business, of course, is just kind of the, the realization that there's an actual opportunity there, Right. And so, you know, I have been probably for like six months just playing with the idea of like, is anyone else going to care about this besides me, right? Like, are people going to care about a brand that is culturally relevant and more approachable and, you know, dot, 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 but that still leverages kind of great ingredients, great sourcing? Am I talking to myself or are there other people like me? And so, you know, I just kind of float the idea with people as I saw them, right? Like, whether it was someone who I knew in the industry or a friend or whatever, right? Like, hey, what do you think about X, Y, Z? Or, right. you know, hey, how do do you like it? Do you like when brands like make products like this, whatever, right? Like just kind of some really informal consumer research until I've got enough data points back that where people would be like a little bit lighting up towards the end, right? Where they were like, yo, <laughs> I feel the same way, man. Or yes, like I've been waiting for someone to do X, Y, and Z, right? So you get a couple of little points of, of you know, validation and, Obviously, there's also a lot of people saying, what are you talking about? Who cares? Blah, blah, blah. Right. But, you know, you have to learn to filter through that. So
0: in any event, you know,
3: step, step one for me was just kind of getting the internal belief that, OK, this is worth doing. Right. And then from there, honestly, it's not, you know, it's not super sexy. You just kind of work the plan. Right. Of like, OK, you have to get some type of MVP product in place. OK. Um, you know, for us. I had a pretty good idea of where the flavors needed to be, right? Like the Cuban black bean is a pretty specifically defined dish, you know. Right. Same thing for like, um, uh, like a Trinidadian curry, right? There's a there's a flavor profile to go after. Like for us, the thing that we spent some time on was like a getting the ingredient, like trying to push the ingredients. So like we use avocado oil, use apple yeah. cider vinegar. Uh, we use real spices, real onions, real garlic. Right. And so we had to find ways to really push on the ingredient quality versus uh, what you might normally find in the bean category. Um, right. And then the other thing was getting it to really work at scale. Right. So another challenge with any, you know, honestly, even if you cook for a big group of people, you know that this is a challenge. Right. Like <laughs> a, a, a small recipe is kind of easy to make it taste good when you start doubling and tripling and quadrupling it and stuff starts getting out of whack, right? And so the same thing when you're producing products, you know, a thousand pounds of beans, it's like, look, you got to play with it so that the texture is right, the taste is right, etc. And so, you know, that was probably the, you know, the second big stage. Once I started working on it full time was just really honing it on the product. And, yeah. you know, the good advantage that I always had, that I have, that I joke with people is like, I don't have the discipline to eat food that doesn't taste good, right? Right. And so, <laughs> Um uh, for me, it was, it was very easy to know when we got there. right? Yeah, it was like, yeah if, it's, if it's if I wouldn't eat this whole pouch, then it's not good enough. And so we pushed and we spent a lot of time on just the formulation until we got to a point where uh, the product was really strong. So those are the first two big steps. Of course, you know, I mean, you're in this space, so, you know, I could walk you through like, you know, a 40, 40 step timeline <laughs> of all the things you have to do. I'll spare our listeners that. But if you have specific areas you want to drill in, by all means, let me know.
1: Well, I think the formulation is is actually very hard, you know, to get right. And, I, you know, we got lucky because we partnered with a, with a big co-packer very early on who knew, how to, who knew how to get us to where we needed to be and knew how to scale us. Um, I feel like I have a lot of friends who are still doing their own production and that's working for them in some categories. It, it seems to be very category specific. But were you kind of always? Did you did you know you wanted to go to a co-packer early on? Did you did you formulate with them? Were you testing in your own you know house? Like how how did you sort of do that formulation piece?
3: Yeah, man, we had a really unique formulation process because I had some recipes that I had been cooking on my own, like in my house, just as like a dish, right? And right. so that was one input. I worked with a food scientist. He was another input. He, You know, he developed some of them and helped me kind of um, standardize some of the flavors. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, there was one flavor where I felt like we weren't quite where I wanted it to be. And I ended up working with um, this Mexican, um, a Mexican woman who was like a caterer. and So she helped me with the development mm-hmm. of that last flavor. And so there were kind of three different flavors. Um, Three different inputs, if you will, on the development side, and then eventually, of course, the co-packer, as you know, kind of helps get it re- get it right for their equipment in particular. Right. Um, so, you know, we took, I think, approach that now, you know, with future innovation, we probably won't won't have quite that many people involved. But um, right. in the early days, it was very iterative. We were passing recipes, you know, back and forth between this this trio for for a while. Um, it's it's core true. Account.
1: Because a lot of people, like I think one of the things that sort of differentiates you, and it is because of your experience, is you're looking at this as a as a big brand and the beans are just the beginning, you know, whereas like we kind of came to it as like we're gonna make this sauce, and then we realized actually we can make a lot of things for home cooks or you know, people who start off with just their mom's recipe for fill in the blank you know, you're, you're already building the big umbrella. Um, and then this is just kind of your, like your beginning product, which is, you know, it's a different, it's a, it's a different way to go into it than a lot of food founders, but also, you know, you're not going to make some mistakes that, that they, that they would, you know, we're just lucky we didn't call the company anything having to do with sauce, you know, cause
3: yeah.
1: now we're just Haven's kitchen. So we can be kind of, anything. Right. Um, but
3: yeah, I want... I, you know, i had... oh sorry again. No, no, go on. Well, no, I'll let you ask the question. I was going to just weigh in on that, but I'll wait for your specific.
1: No, you should weigh in on that. Cause I was going to go to sales.
3: <laughs> okay. No, well the, the one quick thing I'll say is that we had, you know, as we talked about, like we had a mission and a vision for the brand before I even knew what the products would be. Right. right? And so yep. in some ways we started from a very unique point of like, Honestly, when I first began, all I cared about was that the brand was really cultural, really authentic, and that like me and my friends and my family would love to eat the products that they make. Right, yeah. like that was the that was the starting point. And so then, of course, the products themselves become kind of secondary in some ways, where it's like there's a million things that could that could meet that criteria. And, right, you know, beans ended up being the first one and one that we I felt good about the category dynamics and the, the way that the product would fit the brand mission, but, you know, I, I'm also confident there are some other things we could do over
1: time. Yeah. No, I mean, it turned out you picked a, you picked a really good category, especially, you know, in the age of a pandemic. Um,
3: <laughs> that is true.
1: Yes. So, all right. We only have a couple minutes. This always happens. I'm sorry, Matt. Okay. Sales, you put it so well. I read an interview. You said it all comes down to velocity and repeat. Um, Can you just break that down? Because I feel like I always try to explain velocity and I don't always do the best job, but I really like the way you kind of just like narrowed down, like for founders, these are the things they need to focus on in the sales world to really know that they're onto something, you know, and if they're not doing these things, then they've got some things they need to fix.
3: Yeah, so first of all, just from a really technical perspective, Velocity represents the amount of product you sell in a given location, right? So it kind of, you know, it controls for the fact that one brand might be sold in a thousand stores, another brand might be sold in 50 stores. Obviously, the first brand will sell more product overall, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people, that the product is resonating with people more than the second one, right? So you really want to just kind of normalize it down to, hey, in one location, how much are you selling in a given week, right? Right. Um, and the reason that velocity is super important, you know, number one is because it's the easiest way to just determine are you solving a need for people, right? Yeah. If people are buying your product really quickly and it's, that rate is growing over time, it means that you're offering something that they're not getting from other brands in your category, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of good products, and but some of them are equal to others, some of them are not quite as good as the, the one that's next to it, right? And so velocity ends up being kind of a kind of a really natural way to see who's the leader in a particular category and how their health is evolving over time. So that's the yep. first thing. Um, it also is super important because it's how retailers determine what they're going to put in their store, right? Like yep. They have a limited amount of shelf space. Obviously they want in every spot to have things that are, you know, as productive as possible. And so, you know, higher velocity items will win out over lower velocity items. Yep. We, you know, there's incrementality that we can get into, but we'll leave that out for now. So that's the first part of it is velocity. The second thing is repeat. Repeat is super, super important, particularly in the food space, because you can kind of trick someone to buy something once, right? Um, There's a lot of ways to get people to buy something one time, right? You have really pretty packaging. You can have a coupon so that they can buy it for a really cheap price. You know, you can buy one and get one free. You can bundle it with some other product that they really like, right? Like we can go on and on. There's a lot of ways to get people to try a product. But really, the only way to get someone to repeat a product is to actually have them enjoy it the first time. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And so for me, repeat is super important because it's kind of like all the bells and whistles are aside. Right. When they opened up the beans and took them home and ate them, did they enjoy what they ate? And did that make them want to go buy it again? So that's why I say that those are the two things that we're the most kind of laser focused on. There's a lot of other stuff, of course, that we have to look at from a business perspective, but those two kind of helped me determine is the core product resonating with you.
1: Do you have a way, because, you know, Velocity, we go into the Whole Foods panel, you know, into the Whole Foods portal and you can see, you know, you can see those numbers per store per week right there. Repeat, is that something that's just like a lot more when you're selling directly? Like how do you know, you know? How do you measure it? I mean, there
3: are are a couple of ways and obviously it'll depend on kind of your company size and what resources you have access to. Right. Like one very simple and free proxy is just is your velocity growing over time? Right. Right. Um, It's not scientific, but it basically tells you like, hey, the people who bought it last week are coming back to buy it again. And then a couple of new people are joining them as well. Right. Yeah. Like that's kind of very simple way to think about it. Velocity increasing over time means you're probably having some level of healthy repeat and then hopefully some continued new trial.
0: So that's one
3: way. There are, of course, data providers that, you know, like a Nielsen or, you know, uh, other panel sources where they're, you know, they're tracking who's buying stuff with their grocery card or other things like that where they're able to track consumers and then they can go back and look, okay, people who bought the product for the first time in January, on average, X percent of them came back and bought it again in in March, you know? Um, and then, of course, you know, if you are selling direct to consumer, you can, of course, just tie every purchase back to an individual, in which case you can see how often people are buying products. So, yeah, at a really high level, those are probably the three most common ways to, to determine repeat on a product. Um,
1: yeah. No, I guess one
3: more thing I'll add maybe just yeah. for the scrappy folks, just because yeah. even there might be people who need one more level is like you can look at product reviews as another good proxy for people's likelihood to repeat, right? right? At the end of the day, if you have really high reviews and high liking, it means people enjoyed the product, they recommend it to someone else, they're probably going to buy it again. You tend to have really low reviews or poor ratings and there's something with the product that people aren't enjoying. and They're unlikely yep. to buy
1: it again. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. I feel like, you know, I have about 30 more questions, but I'm going to go macro on the last couple and kind of go with like, what's your best advice and what do you wish you had known? You know, what are what are some things that you wish other founders maybe would know earlier? Um, you know, some some big picture stuff or, or little picture, but just stuff that you feel like people maybe don't know because they don't have the experience.
3: Man, it's a really great question. So I'll, I'll say one or two things. The first thing I'll say, which is not necessarily going to help you build a better business, who knows, but it's important advice to, for me just to enjoy the journey is that What I find is that people start their business with a very idiosyncratic, specific view on the world or a category or a product. Right. Mm -hmm. And then as they get going, you're naturally bombarded with so many different best practices and consulting Mm -hmm. and advice and feedback. And it's just it's nonstop. Right. Like you get you're getting inputs from millions of places. Yeah. And you can eat, you can very easily start to water down what you're doing or start to chase what other people are doing or just generally make whack decisions. Right. And so the things that I would encourage founders to do is to like, listen to the voice in your head. Right. And it's a balance of course, right. There is some feedback that's useful and valuable and that you want to listen to objectively, but there's also a certain element of this, which is not rational. Right. Um, like, you know, if I could tell you the amount of times that people just told me some effect of no one cares about beans and why are you doing this, like, mm-hmm. I, could, I wouldn't be able to count it. And they didn't say it quite that mean. Right. But that was the that was the summary of what they were saying, right? And it was just like, look, I have an intuition about what we're doing, and hopefully I'll be able to to, to prove them, uh, to prove myself right, right? So that'll be one thing. It's like, find the right balance between taking people's advice and looking for best practices and kind of following some type of internal North Star.
1: Yeah,
3: um, That'll be that'll be one one thing. Um, something that I would do differently, you know, first of all, you, you know, knock on wood, like we've had a pretty, um,
1: yeah.
3: you know, pr- pretty blessed run so far. And so I don't have a ton of, you know, a ton of big regrets. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, what the pandemic has exposed and maybe all, maybe other people are already ahead of me is I wish I had spent more time early on building my e-commerce. and Yeah. Um, this just not, you know, when we started the business, I was very much looking at the data, right? Like 95% of my category was sold in retail stores. Um, the little bit that was sold online was sold through one or two very specific online retailers, right? And so there wasn't a strong reason to believe that.
1: People are going to be looking to
3: yeah. Well, there wasn't a strong reason to believe that there's a big opportunity. Obviously, the world has changed. Right, the last ninety days have taught us all a lot, um, and some of that stuff you can't predict, of course. But um, if I'm being honest, that's probably one. The one thing I would have done differently is have a really strong direct-to-consumer experience, kind of up from day one. And you know, hopefully, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll rectify that here shortly. But um,
1: I'm sure you will. I mean, and the thing is, is like we you're also like, you're like me, you're a grocery guy. Like the kid who walks around the grocery store and is sort of mesmerized by the promotions and the bundles and the new products. Like, I think we're still sort of, we love the grocery store, you know, and it's hard. I, it's, I mean, we have a product as you probably know. So like direct is really hard for us. Um, so I'm kind of just assuming that the grocery stores are going to figure out but you know it has been hard unless you're unless people know to put you in their baskets they're not doing discovery on prime they're doing discovery in the store and with fewer people on the store it just you know it's harder to get people you know new people um but you I think you want to say something
3: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, that's just part of the game, right? Like you got, it's like jazz or basketball. You got to get into it and get into a flow and you got to improvise, right? Yeah. Um, you can't, you, you know, you run a set play and then something happens and you change the play, you know? And yeah. so I, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't stress myself out about it too much. It's more a question of like, okay, well now that you have a new set of facts, right? what's the new decision, what's the new set of decisions that you're going to make, right? And yeah. so that, you know, you have to make the right set now. So um, yeah. No, amazing.
1: I like so much fun talking to you. Um, I just am a huge fan of what you're doing. And I, you know, I think I saw you last year at Expo West. And like I said, there just aren't that many people making food. Um, You know, the way I think of food. Um, No offense, everyone out there. Um, So I noticed and um, I'm excited for you. Um, Thank you so much. For coming on the show. And Matt, thank you for dealing with all of the engineering um, issues that Mm -hmm. (laughs) seem to come up when we do these things online. Um, Ibrahim, it was really nice meeting you. And um, everyone go to A Dozen Cousins online or at Whole Foods. Their Instagram is adorable. Um, And thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for coming. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.